so we are in this series called The Miners. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. Um, well, they look like this. Now, last week, I was like, when I saw the notes for it, because we're doing all these like baseball card kind of things, and the guy was naked. And I'm like, whoo, if you didn't see it last week, not like totally naked, it's a stick figure, figure naked. But anyway, I was like, wow, that's kind of risque. But I was really, not that I was excited, I was just like, well, that's, that's a little bit different. Anyway, whatever. Hey, if you are new to Element, welcome. Uh, <laughs> there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Again, there are these sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, there is the Minor Prophet baseball card on one side. In the back, you get some stats. Up here in the corner, it actually says 12.1, because today we're doing something different where we're spending some more time in the prophet we're looking at today. On the bottom, there's some questions to go through what we're talking about. On the top, there's the verses, so it all kind of goes together. If you have a small smart device, you can download an app called Uversion, and in Uversion, you click on More and Then Events, we will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions on the bottom, uh, the announcements that Christy went through, really everything that goes with today. Uh, my name is Aaron, I'm one of the pastors at Element, why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And this is Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, and it says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Let's pray. Father, the, today I ask that you would take us and move us to a place where we understand what you are doing in the world and the places that we don't understand what you are doing, that we would trust you in the midst of it, that we'd be honest enough to cry out to you with what is going on in our lives, and that would lead us to speak to one another about what is going on there as well, and that we would come to a place where Habakkuk does, which is full trust of who you are and calling you our Holy One. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are, as I said, doing this series through the course of the summer called The Miners. Uh, that's where we are all of our logos and everything like that. Today we are hitting the last minor prophet. He's a guy named Habakkuk. But if you've missed any of it, there are some really crazy stories throughout this. You get Hosea, which is where God tells him to go marry a prostitute. We did that one on Mother's Day. You're welcome. It was so great. If you missed it, listen to it. Amos is a farmer. God sends him in difficult situations. And we didn't really follow a linear line throughout those prophets. It was whoever was showing up speaking, you know, picked their prophet and did that. So it didn't follow like a timeline history. So what I've done today and we'll have over the next few weeks is on all the communion tables, there's a timeline for you if you want to pick one of those up. And it will tell you when the prophet spoke, who the kings were at the time, and how it kind of went through. Now, it's written kind of small, so if you're older, you might need your readers to see it. Uh, but it's also in our U version. We'll have a connection, a link to it in the bottom. Uh, if you're watching online, in the bottom of this, there'll be a link to that there. So you can look at that if you want to have an idea of where all the timeline was for all of those prophets. The last voice who speaks in the Old Testament is a guy named Malachi. We looked at him on July 4th, and today Today, I want to end with someone who kind of sits in the middle of all these people. It's a guy named Habakkuk. He's one of my favorite minor prophets. The words that he spoke have actually gone through all of church history, even through today. It kind of even sparks the ideas of the Reformation. And I think it relates to our modern lives and the way that he speaks and what he says, that we can trust God no matter what situation we find ourselves in. And the message this week and next week kind of go together. This is like my setup for where we're going next week, but really it's the ideas of why is God doing what he's doing in the world, and many times their answer is, we don't know. And even if God tells us why he's doing, we still don't get it or understand. 
So today, I'm going to spend a lot of time giving you a whole lot of history about where Habakkuk is when he shows up. Some of you love the history stuff and the story. You're like, woohoo, so glad I came. And some of you are like, why did I get out of bed for this? I get it. But we're, you're, going to be, you're going to be okay. Now, Habakkuk is someone who is totally frank and honest with God and with us. And a lot of Old Testament prophets, you'll see as they walk through their books, you're going to see the nature of God and his character throughout it. Habakkuk is no different. It is that God deals with all of human history, not just individual moments, and he is weaving everything together to his ultimate purpose. Now, when you look at the Israelites, they have had thousands of years of history. They have been in slavery and conquered more than once. They've wandered through desert places on the way to their home more than once. They have perpetrated violence on others. Violence has been perpetrated on them more than once. But they have all these ideas of the promises and the culmination of what they're waiting for. And these promises essentially start with a guy named Abraham. And God shows up to Abraham when he's really old and says, you're going to have a son. And Abraham hasn't had a son yet. And he says, don't worry, you're going to have a son. And in God's mind, that son will lead to a son, to a son, to a son, to a son that ultimately leads to God's son, Jesus. And Abraham trusts God. He follows him where he calls him to go. Abraham will have a son named Isaac. Isaac will have two sons named Jacob and Esau. And the blessings and promises that God gave to Abraham, he gives to Isaac. And then he gives to Jacob. God chooses Jacob. He will eventually, through a lot of stuff, change Jacob's name to Israel. Israel will then have 12 sons. These 12 sons will eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. But before all of that happens, there's a great famine in the land. And so what happens is Israel takes his whole family, his 12 sons and all their wives and all their kids, and they go down into Egypt, into a land called Goshen. They do that to survive because of that famine. Now in that area, one of uh, Israel's sons named Joseph was sold into slavery and ends up rising to prominence. And that's how they get the land there, to be able to live in and to survive. But after 400 years of being there, the Israelites, they're kind of like rabbits, they go from 72 to 2 million in like 400 years, and the Egyptians get afraid of them. So they force them into slavery. And in the midst of that slavery, they start to cry out for freedom. Will someone come and rescue us? And God hears that cry. And God comes and rescues them and pulls them out, takes them from slavery into freedom, from death into life. And he leads them across this desert place. And as he leads them across this desert place, they start whining and complaining. And in order to grow them up, God will lead them to that desert place for 40 years. And eventually he will take them into the land that he promised Abraham in the very beginning. And so you have generations where God is the king of these people in that country where he has led them. But eventually the people say, well, we don't want God as our king. We want a human king like all the other nations have. And so what God says is, okay, I'll give you a human king. And he gives him a guy named Saul. Everybody is very excited about Saul because Saul is very tall and manly and handsome and large. Like, yes, that's the type of king we have to have. That's better than the other nation's king. That is what we want. And yet Saul is unbelievably disappointing as a king. Next that happens is God will give him another king named David. David is the youngest of his brothers. Nobody's even looking at him, but God says, I look at the heart, not at the outward appearance. And David will be called a man after God's own heart. And you might think, well, wow, that's amazing. He must have never let God down. He must have always done the right thing. Well, that's not actually what happened, unless you think that God is in favor of war and adultery. He's not, by the way. David had huge character flaws, massive shortcomings. You might think you have shortcomings in your life. David has got you beat. David has, commits adultery with a woman, has her husband killed. 
One of his kids uh, rapes his daughter. He doesn't do anything about it. If you are playing character lacking Uno, that card trumps almost every other card in the deck. And so David, he is king of Israel, and he's got all of these issues and all of these problems. His reign is marked by a great deal of bloodshed. He's always at war with the, Palestine, the Philistines and all this. And you can kind of throw this trichotomy at his life. David is a warrior in every sense of the word. He is a leader in every sense of the word, and yet he longs to be an actually is a worshiper in every sense of the word. And so you have this weird trichotomy in his life. David is unbelievably honest about his shortcomings and his failings and how he wants to love and follow God. You can read the book of Psalms. Sometimes as you read through the book of Psalms, David almost looks a bit schizophrenic because on one page he's like, how long, O Lord, will you forsake me? And you flip the page and it's like, oh, you're so near, I can hardly breathe. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You flip to the next page, it's like, will you ever listen to me again? And you flip the next page and it's like, You've never left me. And I think David relates a lot to us because in our lives, I think a lot of us want to be worshipers of God and you have all these places where we fail and fall. That's David, always wanting to come back to worship who God is, but having all of these things in his life. Uh, Matt Chandler writes about David. He says, many people love David because when you follow Jesus, there are times where it feels like he's in the room with us. And there are times when it feels like the only one who was hearing our prayers was our cat or dog. That's David. Like, oh, you're so close. Oh, where are you? That's David. Now, David rules and reigns for years. David actually takes Israel's borders to what God promised they would be. Extends them out farther than any king or anybody in the land had ever done. Nearing the end of David's life, the war with the Philistines is coming to an end. Uh, they know that there is going to be peace. And so David goes to God and he says, let me build your temple. You do not to need to be in a tent. Let's build a place where all the nations can come and see who you are and your goodness to Israel and what you have done for us. It sounds like it'd be a great idea, right? God says no. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3, God says, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Now, there's all things that go into that, but suffice to say, God says to David, I'm going to let your son Solomon build the temple. What does David do? He doesn't get dejected. He's like, God hates me. How terrible is that? David goes, okay, well, what can I do? And so David starts going out and he get, starts gathering all the stuff for building the temple, the gold and the jewels, because he's very excited about this house that God wants to build, even though it's not through him. Now, what happens right after David starts gathering this stuff is David dies. And the Bible is very clear about this and constantly shows us the brevity of life under the sun. All the powerful men die, all the powerful women die. All the not powerful men die, all the not powerful women die. And this story just then goes on and on after we are gone. It's true in the Bible, it's true of our lives. And understanding that helps us to understand Habakkuk just a little bit, that everybody has an expiration date. Now, David dies, and then Solomon comes in and he rules and reigns, and Solomon builds this temple. It is called one of the wonders of the ancient world. And there is peace and harmony in Israel. The economy is flourishing. Great things are happening. And this is what they all think they have been waiting for since these promises were spoken to Abraham. Here it is. This is great. During Solomon's reign, there is not a lot of threats because his dad took care of all those. It's actually remembered as the golden age in Israel's history. But if you look at Solomon's writing and some of the history of that time, you see these dark clouds on the horizon. Solomon had started to tax the northern tribes excessively in Israel to pay for all the things he was doing. In Solomon's own writings, we look at Ecclesiastes a couple years ago, and in that you see Solomon's leisure had led to a whole lot of problems. 
to the point where at the end of his life, Solomon is burnt out with all of his ease. And he says, who cares how much money you have? Who cares how much stuff you have? Who cares how many things you've built in your life? If your life doesn't serve God and your sons don't care about who he is, then everything was for nothing. I mean, that's kind of a paraphrase, but too much comfort leads to much complacency. I don't know if you've seen that in our own society. Sometimes that, that happens, right? He will say that you will die and everything you think that you've built for yourself is going to go to people who do not even care. And they're not going to care for the things that you've given them. He's having a bad day, but it resulted in a lot of wisdom. So Solomon then will die. The story moves on again. All the powerful men die. And then this disintegration in Solomon's heart, you start to see it happen in the nation of Israel. He has some sons that start to vie for power. One of them's name is Rehoboam. Rehoboam steps and do his dad's shoes. And he says, okay, here we go. We're going to take this kingdom and, and I'm going to rule over it. And the northern tribes come to him and say, your father taxed us excessively. It's too much. Can you lessen our tax burden? You ever get upset over taxes? Okay, so they come to him and, and say this, and then, and then he goes and he talks to his dad's advisors, the older men, and they say, yeah, you really should lessen that tax burden. Then he goes and talks to his young friends, the ones that are his age, and they go, no way, you should make it even a heavier tax burden so they know that you're more of a man than your dad is. So he goes back to the northern tribe and says, no way, I'm going to tax you more because I'm more of a man than my dad was. He actually says this in a very vulgar way in, in the scriptures, and the northern ten tribes go, we're out. And the kingdom of Israel fractures. It's about 900 BC. And those 10 northern tribes of Israel make a nation that call themselves Israel. Then you have the southern two tribes, which call themselves Judah. Now, the northern tribes never had one godly king. They're always, you know, sticking their, their thumb in God's eye and saying, we don't care about you. And eventually God comes and he disciplines them in 722 BC by sending the Assyrians through. They actually call those northern tribes the, the 10 lost tribes of Israel because it's hard to follow what happened to them after the Assyrians came through. But the, northern or the southern tribes are still there. Judah is now all alone. And they're falling more and more and more into idolatry. As a matter of fact, the Jews are actually called Jews because later when the Babylonians come through and they take the southern kingdom of Judah out, God will return them after 70 years, this kingdom of Judah, since almost, and that's why everybody now calls them Jews because almost every single one of them were actually from Judah. So when the northern tribes are hauled off, the southern tribes are still there and eventually this king comes into power named Manasseh. Manasseh reigns 55 years, and Manasseh is a terrible king. He's into great idolatry. He closes the temple of God, starts building all these idols around the country. His son comes in named Ammon. He starts building, again, other temples in Judah to other gods. Uh, he blatantly mocks who God is. Uh, so this monument to God, this temple that Solomon had built to God's promises, is now falling apart and is completely dilapidated. And in the end, there's a little revolt. And Ammon is actually assassinated in 641 BC. And at that point, his son Josiah comes and takes over the throne of Israel at the ripe old age of eight years old. Everybody following still? You with me? Okay, eight years old. Can you imagine? Look at some eight-year-olds around here. Like, what would that be like? Pokemon and Spider-Man jammies for everybody. Woohoo! 
That's what it would look like. That's, good. That's, a, that's fun for a while, but eventually it's going to get really old really fast and fall apart. Now, we don't know all that happened in the beginning part of J Josiah's reign. When he's 16 years old, all kinds of things start to change. But from 8 to 16, what does it look like? Well, when I talk to you about the prophet Zephaniah, he most likely spoke in the time between when uh, Josiah was 8 to 16 years old. And at 16 years old, Josiah devotes his heart and his mind and his soul to God. He begins to lead all these reforms in Judah to bring them all back to God. He leads God's people to repent of their sin and their idolatry and turn back to God. He's not alone. The prophet Jeremiah shows up, starts calling people back to follow God to repentance. Josiah decides we need to fix God's temple. We're going to worship him in honesty and truth. So they go and they start to clear out the weeds and the rubble and rebuild the temple. And as they do, they find this scroll. And whether they are Jewish scholars, Christian scholars, secular scholars, everybody agrees that they found the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they start to read the Torah. And Josiah and the high priest are just cut to their heart and they begin to weep. And I think part of the law's job in that is to show us our shortcomings and failures when we compare ourselves to who God is, that none of us can live a righteous life. So they read it and they weep. Then Josiah calls the entire nation together and he says, we're going to read these words to you. And Josiah and the high priest read the words of the scroll of the people and their hearts are just cut. And everybody's like, we need to follow the Lord. We are sorry. They start to repent. And there's this whole national movement of people returning to the Lord. Josiah calls a Passover meal, the remembrance of how God leads them out of Egypt, you know, from death into life, from slavery to freedom. He starts bringing all these reforms that God is good. We have been slaves to ourselves. We need to follow him. He calls them back to covenant relationship with God. There's a mass repentance in Judah that can only be described as an Old Testament revival, and it's essentially a miracle. It will literally be today the sectors of government and education and science and agriculture and every domain of our society saying, we have turned our backs on Jesus. We need to fall down and worship of him. We are going to follow who he is in our lives. That'd be a miracle, right? Yes, and it would be amazing, be amazing. And you can see why this is important in the scriptures. Now you're probably going, okay, where's the backup? He's not here yet. We're almost there, okay? So just go with me a little bit longer. We're, we're getting there. Now, there are three main powers in the world at the time that Josiah becomes king. And Judah is not one of those powers. I heard one person liken it to that Judah's like Delaware. Like, no one's afraid of Delaware. There might be, like, you know, nice places in Delaware, but it's got, like, 250 people in it. On a good day, Ellen could take Delaware. So it's, it's small. It's insignificant. But the three main powers at that time, here's a map. Yes, okay. So here's the map. So you have Assyria, you have the Babylonians called the Chaldeans, and then you have Egypt. Assyria is like the king of the hill, they, but they're in sharp decline. The Babylonians are brutal, but they're on the rise. They're very violent, very aggressive. Imagine like in Iran or in North Korea that was much bigger and much more powerful. They conquer and enslave nations around them. If fire fell from heaven and burned up Babylon, you'd be like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And then you have Egypt. Egypt, also a major player, but also in sharp decline. And in Egypt, you have a guy named Necho II, who was Pharaoh of Egypt. And eventually, after Josiah's been reigning about 31 years, he will send a letter to Josiah, king of Judah, saying, I want to take my army through Judah into Assyria. There's a valley called Megiddo, which translates as 
Armageddon, uh, that would be the quickest way to go from Egypt up to Assyria. Now, the Egyptian army wants to join the Assyrian army to fight against the rising power of the Babylonians. We've got to be able to put these guys down. And so he says, I'm going to take my army through. What did Josiah say? No, you don't. You don't get to do that. And it's funny because Nico gets mad because he wasn't asking Delaware. He's just saying, no, this is what I'm going to do. He's trying to be nice by saying something. Josiah says no. So the Egyptian army starts to march up to the Valley of Megiddo. Josiah says, call the troops. And they go out there, and this tiny little army of Judah starts to try and take on this army of Egypt. Um, now, when I was there, here's a picture of the Valley of Megiddo. That's what it looks like. That's where they rode their troops. That's when I was there. It's really weird. We were there walking up, and all of a sudden there's a rainbow in the background. I'm like, oh, that's so funny. Anyway, uh, that, that's it. Now, you've got to like Josiah because Josiah, he will disguise himself and go fight as one of the soldiers. For most of us, this is a bad idea. The king should direct the battle. The king should not be in the middle of the battle. But to a man in the trenches, to have your king go, I'm just not uh, asking you to die. I'm willing to die with you. It's kind, of, it's kind of beautiful. So Josiah puts on a sword, puts on a uniform, and goes to charge the field with his men. What do you think happens? This reformer, this, this guy who is bringing about all these things to return to the Lord, calling people to repentance. What happens to him? He gets killed. That's what happens. You're like, what? Yes, it's the Valley of Armageddon. Everybody dies there. That's what happens. And so, and so the Egyptian army kills everybody just, and just keeps on trudging through to go up to Assyria. Josiah had uh, some sons. The people come and take one of Josiah's sons, a guy named Jehoahaz, and they put him on the throne. He rules for three months. But in those three months, he starts to lead Israel back to the ways of his grandfather and great-grandfather who were idolatrous and evil. After three months, the Egyptian army is done fighting against the Babylons, and they come back to the Valley of Megiddo. And Necho goes and takes this Jehoahaz off the throne of Israel, and he, off the throne of Judah, and he hauls him back to Egypt with him. He will be the first king of Judah to die in form of captivity. And then Necho will take uh, Josiah's other son, a guy named Eliakim, who he will rename Jehoiakim, and he puts him on the throne of Israel. And Jehoiakim is actually worse than probably any of his predecessors. He is way way worse. He will lead Judah 11 years, really until the Babylonians come to power. There'll be two kings after him, but really, after this guy, Judah just had no more. Judah is really no more. All the, the reforms that Josiah made, all the God-honoring, God-exalting reforms, all the progress is blown to pieces. Rabbinic literature shows Jehoiakim to have lived in incestuous relationships with his mother, his stepmother, his daughter-in-law. He is always murdering men and violating their wives and taking their property. He is a terrible guy. The Jerusalem Talmud, he is quoted as saying this, My predecessors, Manasseh and Ammon, did not know how they can make God most angry. What did those guys do? They closed the temple. They built other temples to other gods. And then he says this, but I speak openly. All that God gives us is light and this we no longer need. We no longer need this God in Israel. Enter Habakkuk. That's when he shows up. She kind of got the feeling of what this is like just a little bit. Yay, great reforms. Well, what just happened? Our king died. Oh, and this guy is like doing all this horrible stuff. Habakkuk steps in into the middle of this. Open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. It's page 508 if you have an element Bible. Now, Habakkuk, we don't know really anything about him other than the words he wrote in this book. We don't know what his, who his father is. We don't know what his occupation was before or after these words. But what we know is the time frame is Jehoiakim. 
So he's going to write a little complaint, and I'll briefly read this, and then we'll kind of walk through this. So Habakkuk 1.1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So he's talking about the things that he has seen around him. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Stripe and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now those words sound a lot like the book of Psalms, where David's like, look at all these nations, look at what they're doing. Here, Habakkuk is saying, this is my own nation, this is my own country, these are my own people doing this. And if you could take yourself and put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes, what would you say? Well, you would say, God, have you seen my country? God, have you seen some of the things that are happening in the world around me? God, how can you let these things take place? Have you seen some of the laws that are being passed? Everything I learned from grammar in elementary school, I can no longer say anymore because they're throwing all the rules out the window. God, what do I do with any of this stuff? And back goes even farther and says, even the people who claim your name, God, even those people are doing all kinds of things that are anti to your name. God, why do you let Christians act this way? God, why do you let the nations act the way they do? Will you not do something about it? Why do you let people live this way? How can you sit idly by and let this happen? Does that sound like us today? We exactly sit in Habakkuk's shoes. And this is why the book is so important. Because we must be a people who see that, that all these things around us that are wrong, we can call it out and be honest about it, but we also have to call out the things within the church as well. Like, we cannot blindly accept someone or something simply because they throw a Christian label at something. I had somebody come to my house and do some work, and they had a Jesus fish on their business card, and all it meant was, I'm going to rip you off in Jesus' name. That's all it meant. And there are moments that we will go through our lives on the road to maturity, and especially Christian maturity, that we're going to hit spots where something happens to us, to someone we love, to the world around us, to the country we live in, to the world that we live in that has us going. What in the world are you doing, God? And this happens in large things like earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes. And it happens in things like COVID. And maybe you're losing your job and school shootings. Non-Christians will even say, well, if there's some all-loving, all-powerful God, explain to me all these atrocities against mankind and all these things that happen in the world. I mean, you don't often hear them tell you the fact that the bloodiest movements in really in the last thousand years are done by people who don't believe in God. But it's still a question for people of faith. What, why does God let these things happen? What is he doing. And we're going to deal with that in the course of Habakkuk. But it's been my experience that a great deal of people who are on the road to maturity, at some point we will all hit a moment or many moments where we don't understand what God is doing. And that's Habakkuk. That is Habakkuk. And what you'll see Habakkuk not do is try to change who God is. Today, a lot of people just try and change who God is. Oh, well, well, I guess that was God. No, God's got to be more like this. Today, there's this big movement called open theism or process theology where people go, oh, well, God doesn't know what's really going to happen. They're trying to let God off the hook for certain things in the world. God never tries to let himself off the hook. God's like, I am sovereign. I am powerful. I am doing something. You have to trust me in the midst of it. Habakkuk never tries to change who God is like we do. He doesn't play games, though. He 
doesn't hide his confusion. He is frustrated, and it starts with his complaint before God. And God is actually going to answer him, which you'll see next week, and it leaves him even more confused, which is kind of funny. And But he brings his complaint to God. Habakkuk comes to God and says, are you going to do something about this? Do you not see how all these things are spiraling out of control? Do you see what people are saying about you? And before I want to get to where I go today, again, I want you to understand, Habakkuk goes to God. He doesn't say, well, I don't believe because of all these things I don't understand. His faith in God, because he knows God is holy and God is good, that's what makes him question why. It drives him deeper into his relationship with God. It drives him to a place of prayer. And we must be a people who understand that at some point we'll come face to face with the fact, do we really believe what we say we believe about God in the middle of things we don't understand? That's where it's going to push us. The book of Habakkuk creates a series of problems that kind of result in this storm that in the end could, should, and would lead us to a place of maturity. Now, as I said before, I quoted Matt Chandler saying something. Matt Chandler actually talks about the book of Habakkuk, and he says three things I think that are really kind of interesting about where we must go in our honesty. First, he says, we will never grow intellectually or in our hearts if we refuse to be honest with God because our worship will never be genuine if we are not honest about what's going on inside of us. When hard times hit, we have the opportunity to look into what we believe in the nature of God. There are books out there you can read like three, three Ways to Remove Doubt or Seven Ways to Be a Godly Man. But in the end, many of those things has no value when the storm hits. Because when the storm hits, it's like, what will I do now? Chandler asks this question. He says, what happens when you get punched in the soul? And I love that because that's how it feels. There are times when we want to distrust God, but those times can actually drive us deeper into a place where we see how infinitely large God is and how tiny we are. When we trust God in places of despair, there's a comfort that will actually begin to come in those moments. Do you know if you walk into older cathedrals, you walk in and they have these high arch ceilings and you feel so tiny in them. And some people are like, oh, they're so ostentatious. That was never the point. The point was that you would feel tiny because God is so big. You'd see how big he is compared to how small we are. You ever been somewhere and something happened that made you just go, wow, this is bigger than me. I was surfing one time and this swell comes up that is, ends up being a wave that's three times bigger than any wave I'd ever been on in my life. And it picks me up and I'm like, well, I'm going to die. That, that's just how you feel. It's going to throw me down and, and, and kill me. I didn't die, obviously, but I thought I was going to die. There, there's video of storms taking battleships on the ocean, and it just tosses them around. If you've never seen a battleship, go to San Diego sometimes, wait for one to come through, and be like, really? Tosses that around? Yes. Nature just kind of tosses these things around. Sometimes you get in places, and there are just things that God has created that are so powerful it makes us stand in awe. But what happens when those things in our life come, and we're the battleship we feel like and yet there's pain and there's sorrow and there's hurt and there's fear and it's tossing us around. What do we do? Well, if we begin to trust God in it, we'll eventually find that there is assurances even in the midst of our questions that we may not ever have answered. I think we run to God in our questions and our pain. We trust His nature. We trust His character because He is big. And when we do that, the situations not only become bearable but can begin to have meaning. Secondly, if we don't uh, trust God and be honest with Him, we're never going to be honest with other people. 
Being honest with God first will lead to being honest with other people around us. If we're not honest with those around us, we're going to start to be people who take our faith and we're never honest about what we're going through. I mean, it can be very dangerous to get into many types of routines in our lives. Now, I don't mean like Element. Element has a routine, if you haven't noticed. Uh, we have a routine for services. 80% of people like routine, 20% don't. The 20% of you always let us know about it. We hear you, got it. But you come into Element, what? You got a song, you got a announcements. If we have more time, you'll get another song there. You get a greeting, message, songs. During those songs at the end, you get, you know, giving, communion, prayer. We kind of keep it the same. There's a language that we like to use at Element. Uh, Jesus, the gospel, gospel communities, uh, cats are terrible, learn how to use the roundabout, stuff like that. If you're really into the message, you might say, oh, amen, at some point, but usually you hear amen, it's like, oh, it's time to go home, and you, and you get up and go. If that is all Element is to you, you're missing the point. You're missing the point of what we do. Because what we want to do is learn how to be honest with God and other people in our lives. If you are not honest with others, then no one knows who you really are. I love technology. I think people being able to watch online is great. But if you're only watching online and you're never connecting with anybody else, you're missing what God calls us into as a people. If we can't get real with God, we're always going to stay on the outside. We're never going to enter into the life He calls us to if we're only doing the routine. No one's going to know who we are on a deep level. And you can come every week, you can watch online every week, but you can still be far from who God is calling us all to be because we're far from Him and far from others. I cannot tell you the number of people I have run into in my life who have thought that no one is struggling like they struggle. No one goes to the things that they, nobody falls like they are. They think they are the anomaly. They didn't think anyone else struggled with their issue. No one has a problem like I have and they feel alone because the church had become a place where they just did the routine and they refused to be honest with God and honest with others. If we refuse to be honest with God, third, and we refuse to be honest with others, then we're going to spend all of our energy in our lives trying to subdue on our own strength whatever we fear, whatever we doubt, whatever our addiction is. And the worst thing is that we will forget what the gospel is because we will think the gospel is us trying to figure out on our own what we're supposed to do. We will forget about the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is why Habakkuk is good for us, because it's honest about what he is going through and what he sees. Now, the amazing thing for us is we get to see something Habakkuk never got to see. We get to see the objective evidence of God's love and care for us, because we get to see the cross of Jesus Christ. The problem with a lot of people today, because of what's going on and how we cry out in our anger and our honesty of what's going on, is we get so focused on the issues and all these things around us that we fail to see the cross. We fail to understand the gospel. We become so issue-driven, we cease to become cross-driven. Guys, we are going to fail. We all are going to fall. The people around us will fail and fall. There will be problems in the world. If we are not honest about it, like Habakkuk, we'll most likely fail to understand that we are those who also needed God's mercy. And we need God's mercy every single day. And it was given to us in the person of Jesus. God's mercy wants to be extended to those around us as well. So many times we will take our eyes off of the objective evidence of God's love for the entire world, that while we were all at our worst, Jesus died for us. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, all of us, Christ died for us. How does tragedy in this world, the hypocrisy of those who claim to follow God, the hypocrisy of our government have any resolution? How does sin ever lose its power over our lives? 
It's not by us trying to walk through life and just put on our boots and strap them up and do it as best that we can. It happens by marveling at the gift and mercy of the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. That's what changes us. That's what makes sin lose its power. That's what makes fear lose its power. Look at all these things happening in my life. What do I do? We look to the gospel. We look to the cross. And when Jesus becomes more lovely and more attractive to us than our sin, then we're starting to get it. When he becomes more powerful and beautiful than our fears and than our doubts, in that moment when we see the cross, we understand that whatever God has allowed to come into our lives isn't necessarily punitive. It's meant to be restorative. It's meant to bring us back to himself. Habakkuk brings shock brings like, what in the world are you doing? But that shock will even trust God in the midst of that shock, as we should. Okay, we must be honest with God. We must be honest with one another. And through this book, we get to be a people who understand God's grace even better because of the things that he will do throughout it. Because we need to see today the rescue we've received in Jesus. He is the answer that our entire world needs. And that is hopefully where I'll take you in the book of Habakkuk. I think we need to understand that, that our hope and our salvation is not in political rulers. For Israel, it's, it's not in David or Saul or Solomon or Rehoboam or Josiah. All these people were people, and they died, and history kept going on after them. Whatever is going on today in the world we get so freaked out about, not that it shouldn't be important to us in many ways, but we must first be a people who come back and understand that God is sovereign and God is good and we will trust Him in the midst of it, whatever takes place. That we will be those who walk with Him, whatever the hard place is in our life or in our world, we're going to trust Him in the midst of it because He is good. And we know that He is good. And He will use all of these things to bring us to Himself. And so that's kind of where we're going to, I'm going to pray for you in that today where we're going, but I'm going to ask the band to come up. And as they do, I want to invite you guys to communion. Because communion is a place to remember what Christ did for us. The objective evidence that God is there, that He cares for us, and that the sin in our life is much, a much greater deal than whatever else is going on around us because God wants to bring us to Himself in relationship. And so this is why. And you come and you break the cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. And you drink the grape juice or dip it in the grape juice. And it's a reminder of his blood that was shed because God brings us back to himself because what he himself has done for us. The objective evidence that God loves us is seen in the mercy and the grace of the gospel that Jesus came to rescue and bring us to himself. And not that the other things in our world are not important. They are. But this is where our eyes must be first. We must be cross-driven, gospel-driven, before we're driven by anything else, or all those other things are going to overtake us. We must be those who are honest with God and honest with others about where we are and what we're going through. And if you need prayer today, uh, you know, talk to Christy at the Welcome Center. We'll connect you with somebody to pray with you today. Because I know there are a lot of places in our lives and the things that we see that we get so caught up in where we have fear, where we feel like we've been attacked, where we feel like things are, are happening to us or we've done something to somebody else and we don't know what to do with that. We bring it to the foot of the cross and we trust the grace of Jesus to be the one that oversees all of it. We lay all of our lives in His more than capable hands. At Element, you know, every week we give. That's why there's offering boxes next to the doors. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what God is doing in our lives. 
And so we respond in ways that worship him like that. Uh, take the couple questions at the, on those little sermon notes and ask those to one another today, this week. Kind of walk through those questions with one another. Where are the places maybe where you get most angry at the things in the world around us? What tends to make your eyes leave the gospel and focus on something else? And then maybe how could focusing on the gospel first lead you to a better place to step into these things that you're frustrated with and about? And in the end, when things don't work out the way that I want, you want, we want, do we still trust God in the midst of it? What do we really believe about who He is? And will we be a people who, though cry out in our honesty and our confusion and not understanding, still trust that God will bring something beautiful in the end, whether we see it in our lifetime or not? Because for Habakkuk, he didn't see it in his lifetime. It was, it was a century later before anything really happened that began to turn this thing around. But he still cries out, and he still trusts God, and he calls God his Holy One. As we must as well. Whatever happens, God is good, and God is sovereign. Though we don't see what he's doing, God knows what he's doing, so we trust him. Let's be a people who trust him. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us and move us to be a people who truly do trust you but also do not have fear of crying out to you in the places where we struggle or we don't understand. God, it seems like the majority of the book of Psalms is David just complaining about the nations around him. And many times he wasn't even looking at his own nation or the things that he was bringing about. And so I ask that you teach us to be honest enough that we look around the world, we also look in our own lives and our own families and see the places where we have also been running from you and living our lives in the opposite direction of what you're calling us to. And in the end, I ask that you would teach us to see the gospel, the cross, what you have done to bring us to yourself as more life-giving than anything else and that we would be a cross gospel driven people before anything else and that we would trust you in the midst of whatever we go through because you are good and you are holy and you have called us to yourself teach us to live as your people trusting you we ask this in your son's good name amen